Welcome to Decisive Point, a U.S. Army War College Press production featuring distinguished authors and contributors who get to the heart of the matter in national security affairs. Decisive Point welcomes Dr. Brian McAllister Lynn, the Rudolph R. Thomas Professor in Liberal Arts at Texas A&M University. Dr. McAllister Lynn is the author of Samuel Huntington, Professionalism and Self-Policing in the U.S. Army Officer Corps, featured in Parameters Autumn 2021 issue. We're here to talk about your article, Samuel Huntington, Professionalism and Self-Policing in the U.S. Army Officer Corps. Now, Samuel Huntington wrote about three phases of self-regulation essential to determining whether an occupation qualifies as a profession, and they were defining its ethics and proficiencies, credentialing its members, and policing and removing those who failed to uphold those standards. Your article addresses the last of the three and examines the U.S. Army's self-policing efforts in the decades from the 1890s to the 1950s. For our listeners, please tell us what did that look like in the post-Civil War era? Post-Civil War era continued the earlier process. And and I'd just like to say that there's some really excellent work on the post-Civil War Army. And I'm very much aware that this is the expertise of people like Samuel Watson and J.P. Clark and so forth. J.P. Clark's book is particularly excellent because what these scholars have recognized is that there's actually a great debate within the U.S. Army about how to define professional. The system is set up that until the 1890s, most of the company grades were Civil War veterans, and they would have defined professional merit as experience. The longer an officer served, the more qualified or experienced he was particularly if, as all of these people had been, they had been in combat as junior officers in the Civil War. And so they're aware of, but they're not overly concerned about officers who were too drunk, old, sick, stupid, you know, otherwise incompetent. First of all, they knew these guys had proved themselves in the test of combat. And second of all, they had learned from the Civil War that armies could be improvised and that officers would spring forward. Those who opposed that definition tended to be commissioned after the Civil War. They wanted a definition of profession based on merit, which they defined as systematic military education to prepare officers for higher responsibilities. So to those officers, because they lacked that combat experience in the Civil War, they had come afterwards. Officers who were too drunk and old and sick and stupid needed to be purged in part so these younger officers could be promoted. Ultimately, what we see is that merit-based definition of professional one, at least in theory, during the root reforms of 1899 to 1903, but only after the seniority or experience-based definition was discredited in the Spanish-American War, and most of the Civil War veterans by that time were too old and had to get out of the Army anyway. Was it any different in the era of the World Wars? In theory, the National Defense Act of 1920 set up a system to purge the U.S. Army of ineffective officers as a sort of trade-off with greatly expanding the officer corps to prepare for mobilization. But in practice, of course, the system didn't work, and partly because neither the Army leadership nor the political leaders wanted to enforce it. And so, as I note in my article, despite establishing officer evaluation reports and so forth, out of the 14,000 officers that were considered between 1927 and 1928, only 46 were forced out. And yet, as there are throughout this period, you know, consistent complaints about particularly the people who'd come in after World War I as simply not being good professional officers, not competent enough to fulfill their duties. When George Marshall comes in, 
he purges hundreds of those people, which is an indication that they weren't very competent. What about during the Cold War? How did self-policing in the Army work then? Well, you know, we see another great effort. There's an Officer Personnel Act of 1947, and it shifted from promotion by seniority to promotion by selection, supposedly establishing a career track of gates that officers had to get through in a certain amount of time, you know, three years to make captain, seven years to make major, and, and so forth. And it also established an officer evaluation process. The assumption was, remember in 1947, that you would have an officer corps of about 50,000, and most officers would retire as senior majors at 20 years, which was the cutoff point. And they would get a million-dollar pension in terms of benefits and so forth. And very few would go on to be colonels. Those would retire at 30, except for the very, very few who became generals. And supposedly, there was a rigorous upper-out process to ensure that the best made the Army a career. Now, in practice, a couple of things happen. One of them is the Army Officer Corps doubles. So instead of dealing with 50,000, you're now dealing with over 100,000 in many cases. And of course, that quantity often has an effect on quality. The second thing is that the lesson of World War II to the senior commands was that it was relatively easy to get junior officers. You know, 90-day wonders, OCS types, you know, natural warriors like Audie Murphy and so forth. That hadn't been the problem. The real problem had been going from an army of about 130,000 to one of 12 million and the management problems of mobilization. You look at Eisenhower's career and then you follow him as successive army chiefs of staff. Omar Bradley, Joe Lawton Collins, Matthew Ridgeway. Maxwell Taylor, Lyman Lemonster, all the way up to 1960. So for 15 years, this group of people dominate the officer selection process. And they all had been students or instructors at West Point, except for Taylor, they had all been at their branch schools. Many had been with Marshall at the infantry school. All had graduated from the elite command and general staff school and from the Army War College. Many had returned to teach. And that education had then when the war came, had allowed them to be selected for very high command. You see people, majors, going up to three-star generals in the space of four or five years. What's interesting is, even if you add Eisenhower, their combined years of peacetime duty was about a dozen. So the lesson for them is that troop duty isn't really important. We had all sorts of troop duty. But professional education and staff duty and management experience is really important. And the third thing you have to remember about that generation is that they had been held under for years, you know, taking 12 years to be promoted to the next grade because in front of them was this big group of World War I veterans who had come in in 1918, 1919, who were hogging all the senior positions. And so for them, youth matters, education matters, and you have to get rid of the deadwood. And so they were really determined to do it. The problem was, for a variety of reasons, you know, even though the act said you're supposed to purge 2% of the bottom, in one four-year period, I figured out they purged 0. 0.0, I think it's 0. 0.048. Oh, my. You know, 300 out of 100,000 officers. There's interesting reasons why that occurs. But the main issue to point out is, again, here's another system to purge out the mediocre, run by officers who are determined to do that. And yet, once again, it doesn't do it. 
Here's a question right out of your article. Why does a military institution that prides itself on its Huntington-derived definition of professionalism find it so difficult to shed its deadwood? What's the answer? The big answer is why all professions, as Huntington defined them, have such difficulty enforcing standards on their members. And, and I think what you look at this, professions spend an enormous amount of time and effort credentialing their members through schools, through practice, bar exams, medical internships, tenure and promotion reviews. They take that very seriously, and they set up a lot of apparatus to do that. But as far as I can tell, professions spend far less time and effort developing the means to remove not the criminals, I'm not talking about felons or something, but I'm talking about substandard, ineffectual, dysfunctional members. You know, simply people who are not good enough to adequately fulfill the institution's self-proclaimed professional standards. I think everyone in the audience can remember being taught history by an incompetent, ineffectual professor who made the subject totally boring and confusing. And I would also say that based on my own experience and 40 years in the business, that person was probably also not meeting the institution's criteria for research. And yet, under the current policy, that same ineffective professor could continue to stumble around the classroom until literally they die in it. So the larger issue is really whether Huntington's criteria that professions are defined by self-policing is actually true, or if it hasn't been proven at all. He just made this up, and everyone just said, oh, okay, and they went along with it. But I don't think it's been proven at all. The second point I'd like to make is that I think many army officers, and I, I say this based on my experience of being around army officers and being at the War College and Commander General Scaff College and so forth, is that the senior levels, majors and above, become very complacent in asserting they are professionals based on Huntington's model without accepting its implications. This is not a definition that allows professionals to pick and choose. We are this because we went to school, but we don't have to worry about the self-policing aspect. You're all, they're all in with Huntington or you're not, you know, and you can't simply say, well, we are professionals. We're an army of excellence, to quote a slogan, and yet somehow managed to attrit less than 1% of the people going through your senior colleges. The third point, and I think this is the, the main thing I wanted to argue, is that unlike many professions, the U.S. Army takes professionalism very seriously. I mean, it's, it is the officers define themselves as professionals in a way that lawyers or doctors don't. And because they take it so seriously and because it's so much part of the Army identity, they're willing to accept the occasional message that they're not living up to their self-proclaimed standards. When I wrote that, I'm by no means the first critic. I mean, if you look at Don Snyder, who spent a lifetime asking the officer corps to examine its ethics, examine its competency... You look at the post-Vietnam studies at the Army War College by Colonels Mike Dandridge and General-to-be Walt Ulmer. You look at numerous student papers and lectures on professionalism. This is an institution that is really, really concerned about its ethics, its standards, and looks at it very seriously in a way that academics doesn't. This article would never have been published in the Journal of Higher Education or any of the things because it's... You know, it's simply too critical. It's asking people to look at themselves seriously. I think that also reflects that the Army is always in the process of getting better. But to do that, it often has to look at big problems. You know, it tends to focus on the small problems. You know, how do we get the next equipment? How do we, you know, get through the next budget process? But a big problem is this issue of how to get rid of the incompetence and how to keep your best young officers. And if your incompetence are driving out your good junior officers, that's a historical problem 
that is always going to be there and always needs to be looked at. That I think is sort of the main point of the article is you people take this seriously and this is a serious problem and there has to be some way of making it better, I hope. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, Thank and, you. and I appreciate you this. And I, I also appreciate, as I say, the Army for reaching out and getting willing to get involved in a conversation. If you enjoyed this episode of Decisive Point and would like to hear more, look for us on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcast Stitcher, and any other major podcast platform.